needs to rebound from what was a terrible season. Does everyone like basketball? With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select Steve Francis from the University this is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the eminently niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. I'm Jeremy Allingham. Today, we bring you the opening episode of Season 3. We're taking you back to June 25th, 1997 at the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina. It is the 1997 NBA entry draft. The Grizzlies had the worst record coming in and the best chance at the number one overall pick, Tim Duncan. But of course, they were not allowed that number one pick. I'm joined by my intrepid co-host. He's on vacation. He's Hawaii bound, but not before remembering some guys first. Justin McElroy, how you doing, Justin? You set it up there with the I'm going to be in Hawaii. I'm going to be enjoying myself. And what better way to do the exact opposite of that than look at the <laughs> worst team for one of outside of the number one pick, the worst drafts ever and how one doomed franchise attempted to turn that corner and failed like they did so many times on this fateful day in Charlotte. Jeremy, it's good to be here. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about that draft, but first, before we begin, we're going to talk a little bit about what we talked about in the last episode and something that we saw in the interim uh, here in the real world between the recording of podcast, which is the one and only official documentary on the Vancouver Grizzlies, which the two of us, amazingly we're in we appeared in this doc uh it's the grizzly truth uh by director cat jamie and you and i had the occasion to go watch the vancouver international film festival debut the premiere at the center in vancouver and it was like it was pretty sweet man like there was 1500 or 2000 people there there was a vibe in the building we saw the grizz girls dance on stage steve <laughs> francis watched uh walked the red carpet uh tony massenberg antonio harvey and the film was uh, unsurprisingly extremely well done and you called it right there the documentary about vancouver grizzlies this is now going to be kind of the foremost historical document uh in film form about our team. And, and you know what, you know, we will try and avoid spoilers here for people who haven't seen it that maybe get inspired listening to us that do see it, you know, that Venn diagram of people enjoying a Vancouver Grizzlies <laughs> podcast, but not seeing the documentary yet. But I thought it was a pretty good and pretty fair documentary, all things together. They told the story of the team, they told the arc, they fairly told the reasons why the team did not work out. It was a tremendous level of access and full credit to Cat Jamie for hustling and finding all of these people, including the one and only with the second pick, Steve Francis, hearing his story for the first time. Uh, and we, mostly you, but we both got some choice quotes in there as well, which was very fun. Uh, and uh, setting up, you know, our antipathy towards Stu Jackson, the, the questions of to whether someone could enjoy the Memphis Grizzlies in the future, the breakdown of that momentous Chris King buzzer beater. Uh, it was something that was ridiculous and weird to watch in person, but also something that for anyone either if they were new to the team in Vancouver now watching it uh, or were a diehard fan at the time, can enjoy. And it's just a lovely thing that this now exists as a record of that very weird team and that very weird time. 
Yeah, that was a pretty wild experience for myself to be staring up at this massive screen and the key scene, you know, at the beginning to kind of set up the Grizzlies, their biggest moment ever, which we've talked about, which mm-hmm. was the uh, the tip in to win the game in, in game number two, uh, home game number one against the T-Wolves. And the two main people telling the story are Chris King and me. And I'm like... <laughs> the dream team. Yes, I, I did not think that that part of our, you know, three-hour interview was going to crack the film. Me, like, on the... They had a Diagram, had a, yeah. Yeah, they had a table on the that was etched with a court, and so they had us using our finger and just pointing to spots on the court and diagramming it. And uh, there I was with Chris King telling telling the story of that uh, amazing tip in. So that was uh, that was really cool to see. I was really really surprised to see that. And yeah, we got we got some good airtime. Um, it was really well done. Uh, the director of photography, though his name escapes me right now, uh, it is just gorgeous to look at. Mm-hmm. It's seamlessly edited. It's um, you know, it, it's got that, it's got an arc. Cat uh, holds it together with her character in there, though she wasn't in there nearly as much as uh, Finding Big Country. But uh, great story, kind of gets to the to the crux of most of the hard issues that needed to be touched on. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're not going to agree on every single thing that's in there, and I won't, I won't get into it too much. But uh, I'm thinking maybe I should talk about my run-in with, uh, with Steve Francis himself. Is that something yeah, that you're doing? Yeah, I, I think I've t- <laughs> this is where we talk about our beefs. Uh, and we had a chance to talk to the one and only Steve Francis here, uh, but it was not to be. No. So the day before the premiere, there was a press junket at the Sutton Hotel in Vancouver, and uh, Kat and her squad were generous enough to allow us to be a part of that. And uh, Justin, you were working hard on the municipal elections, so mm-hmm. I kind of swung down to the Sutton. And and, and for pretty... people that aren't aware, press junkets like this, it's very pre-planned. It's very yes. structured where everyone agrees going in what's going to happen. And here, you thought there was an agreement. Yes. So I was going to get to talk to Antonio Harvey, George Lynch, and... Most importantly, Steve Francis. The big three. So so I was, you know, I spent a lot of time prepping for this. I had like my whole plan laid out. I, you know, it wasn't anything crazy, but just like how I wanted to approach him and I wanted to be fair and I wanted to bring very specific questions to him. Um, and I literally arrived to the hotel and I'm in the lobby and my phone buzzes and it's the press person and she's saying, sorry, Steve left you won't be able to talk to him. And I'm like, Steve, what does that mean? Steve left? And I'm like, sorry, what? And they're like, yeah, like he's just gone out. (laughs) He just took off. But he left for a very specific period of time. Well, yes, that's my conspiracy theory in action here, right? Is that, so I go in and they're kind of apologetic and they're like, sorry, he's not here. He took off. We don't know. Maybe he's getting lunch, maybe whatever he's doing. And so I chat with, Antonio, I chat with George Lynch. You're on a first base mate, yes, first name basis we're, with them now, of course. We're best buddies, <laughs> uh, and you know, like nothing crazy, like eight, ten minutes with mm-hmm. each of them. And the whole time, I'm like, "Well, is Steve Francis going to come back? Is he going to come back?" And I finish up with those guys, and just as I put my camera and mic into my bag to head out, in comes Steve Francis, and I'm kind of like, I'm looking at him. I'm looking at mm-hmm. the PR team. I'm looking at Kat. And you I'm had an agreement? Like, yeah. Like, I don't want to be rude and be like, well, he's here now, so I should get to talk to him. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm kind of like doing the like, huh? 
uh, like I'm kind of like, like I'm kind of gesturing my body openly towards him and them. Like, hey, like, what do you, what do you think? I mean, what and what what is the name of our podcast, Jeremy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> second pick, Steve Francis. And so, but there, I'm getting no bites. Like they're just like, it's over. Like, bye, Jeremy. Basically, was the thing. And I'm like, well, I gotta at least take this opportunity to like say something to yes. him. So I I had had a button uh, of our logo with him on it, and I was like, hey, man. I just wanted to give you this uh, button. This is our podcast. You know, I just want you to have this. And we know, and goes, we know he was aware of our podcast before this. He posted. Well, it we know on Instagram. Aware of he was aware of the logo at least, right? Remember, he called it fan art, so we mm-hmm. weren't sure if he knew it was a podcast, but we knew that he had seen our logo before, so it had to have been familiar to him in some capacity. And then, so he says, "Oh, y'all are the setup artists." And that's when I'm like, whoa, what? We're setup artists? And I was like, and I, I was super calm. Like I didn't, I yes. was not, you know, getting rattled. I was just like, no, 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 man. I'm like, we're we're historians. We love the team. We just love, we just want to ask questions and get the real story of what happened with the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so he has the button and he's wearing all Grizzlies gear, which is like kind of weird, right? Yes. Like it doesn't really make sense, but he's wearing like head to toe Grizz gear. And I was like, hey man. You look pretty good in that gear, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, thanks." And I was like, "But you would have looked a lot better in it about twenty years ago." And it's like, "Ah, oh, now it's like there's a little bit of a a, a ribbing going yeah. on here." I was, the tension like, has been I, loosened. Ice yeah, is broken. it wasn't meant to be like some hard shot on him or whatever, but uh, yeah, you know, like he he said something like, "Well, this one says Van City Grizzlies." I don't know what that meant, but uh, you know, our opportunity was quite fleeting. I got a photo with him. Um, that's probably the closest we'll ever get to our Steve Francis interview. But hey, we'll never stop trying. Um, well, <laughs> that, that can be part of the lore, right? And, and I have two things to say. That first of all, uh, it, it is very funny to me personally, as someone who has interviewed basically every person of power in this province to have never been called a setup artist until Steve Francis comes along. Yes, uh, you, you know that's my style. But secondly, though. Uh, I did find it interesting, you know, watching, and again, we're not trying to get into spoilers here, but watching the documentary, seeing him tell what his side of the story was, seeing him also here in Vancouver, sort of a little uncomfortable the entire time, but feeling that he uh, needed to do this. You you know, this is a guy with a past um, uh, that uh, has had difficulty being able to explain who he was and what his mindset was. And I think did this out of a sense of this is my time and my chance to do this, but also not a hundred percent uncomfortable at the same time. And it made for a very interesting weekend and it made within the documentary as interesting as well. And so, well, part of me, when you told me what had happened there, I rolled my eyes after I watched the movie, I went, okay, he's doing the best he can. He's trying hard. Uh, and at the end of the day, you can't be too upset with him. Yeah. To me. So to me, the, that was the best part of the film. Was yep. the Steve Francis thing, uh, you know, cat tracks him down and it goes from there. But basically without spoiling it, we get the story, we get his perspective, which we've never really received in full. And I don't know, man, he came across very genuine, very earnest. Um, again, like that doesn't mean you necessarily agree with everything he did or everything he says, but he's a real guy who did want to kind of share what happened. So, but then just to finish off the conspiracy theory part of the press junket <laughs> yes. is that he saw the name of our podcast and just so happened to go out for like lunch and a smoke when it was our half hour, which has been like 
thoroughly debunked and denied by the PR team and Kat. They were like, no, he had no idea what the schedule was. He just like, he took off and I'm like, mm, okay, mm, okay. Yeah. But you know, maybe I'm giving myself a little bit of an overinflated sense of self-importance here, but uh, you know, it was a, it was a cool experience seeing the film and like, obviously we're super biased, but if you care about nineties basketball, the Vancouver Grizzlies at all, you got to see it. Like it's, it's really well done. Let's just add it to one more what if in the mountains of what ifs that exist for the Vancouver Grizzlies. Uh, Let's move on to the rest of the episode, though. As you said, June 25th, 1997, Charlotte, North Carolina, the 1997 NBA draft. There is one icon, one no-doubt Hall of Famer, one of those guys that appears only two times a decade as the overwhelming, unconditional, number one pick and the Vancouver Grizzlies are not allowed to get him. Uh, Not that we need to relitigate this too long for the 15th time in this podcast, but was it fair that in season three, not season one or two, but season three, the Grizzlies with the worst record were unable to even have a chance to get the number one pick to select the one and only Tim Duncan? No, no, it was it was ridiculous. It was compl- <laughs> it was criminal. Like this is another situation where you can very reasonably and realistically say that if that rule was different and it was two years instead of four that they couldn't get the first pick, or you know maybe they should have been able to get it the whole time. Whatever you want to say, like that would have changed the course of basketball, NBA basketball in this city forever. Like this is a two-time MVP, a fifteen-time All Star, a fifteen-time All NBA, fifteen-time All Defensive, like. He's a top 10 or 15 player of all time who was just built to win. He's a winner. He's one of the greatest winners in the history of the sport. And um, all we had the most ping pong balls. We were the worst team coming in. And, you know, as much as the draft system is silly in the NBA that you get rewarded for being bad, that's how it works. That's how If that's how it's going to work, that's how it should have worked for the Vancouver Grizzlies. And they should have had Tim Duncan. It's just another – it's just another – notch on the fucking wall of injustice against the grizzlies the 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 two things and not not that we want to you know overly hypothesize and be sad about what could have been with tim duncan but i i think two things number one you know what happened with so many players when they came to vancouver where they were like i fundamentally don't want to be here and i'm going to show this in either big or small actions everything that we've seen about tim duncan and his grace and humility uh, as an nba player makes me think that it could have worked here as much as any other player that came through I'd like to believe, and I like to believe just as evidence of watching him playing, that he would have been fine being in Vancouver should it happen. And then the second thing is I could easily see, given how, you know, you go, how does it work with him and Reef and Big Country? I could see a way where they play big and it's Duncan at the power forward and it's Reef at, at the small forward, given the way the NBA worked then, if Reef was agile enough. Uh, you certainly would need to have like a couple people that are better with, you know, your 18 foot jump shots, but man, that would have been a long agile Duncan d- doing the defense that reef and big country never could. Again, you don't want to do too much. What if, but you know, evolve the what ifs. I think that's one of the strongest ones. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point though, too, is like Tim Duncan may have been actually happier in Vancouver than other kind of like high spotlight, high mm-hmm. pressure situations. Like that's his vibe, right? Like he liked being in San Antonio cause it's a smaller place. It's like, 
it's just not New York. It's not Boston, though. He would have been obviously great in those places as well. That wasn't going to change anything, but that's a great point from you. And then certainly playing with big country, like, I mean, that proved out. He went and played right beside David Robinson. They won the title. So it was completely doable for him to play the four to a big, a big man five, obviously Robinson, uh, not to be mentioned in the same breath as big country, but <laughs> same <And> idea, yeah. <laughs> twin, twin, twin towers. You know, mm-hmm. we love to, we love to compare hall of famers to our sweet, sweet big country, but, uh, yes. So the number one pick to the San Antonio Spurs who catapulted up the draft in the lottery, uh, from three to one. And of course, uh, despite trade offers from the Celtics, we hear that the Boston Celtics offered uh, number three and number six for the number one. We saw a quote in an old newspaper clipping saying that the Philadelphia uh, 76ers were going to put a deal together trying to get that number one pick. The Spurs are like, no, thanks. We're good. We'll take Tim Duncan with the first overall pick. Uh, and uh, who would argue with that, right? He was such heads and shoulders above everyone else. Uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that the Grizzlies cannot get a number one pick. But for number two, they are the most favored with 250 of the 1,000 ping pong balls. They don't get that. They don't get number three. Instead, they fall to number four, the worst that they can do. And on one hand, you might go, this is another example of the, the Vancouver Grizzlies being the Vancouver Grizzlies and getting the worst luck. However, you look at how that draft and what players were available post-Tim Duncan and what the buzz was on them, there was not a heck of a lot of difference between the people that came after. And that's part of the reason why there was so much trade conversation happening with the Celtics, with Philadelphia, because they knew there was really not a heck of a lot of guaranteed stars after that. And it was credit to the Spurs to know that, yeah, we're not giving away this golden ticket. Yeah, and it's funny, Justin, you're kind of of parroting a bit of a Stu Jackson... um... (laughs) Wow. Uh, talking point here. Wow. There was a great quote <laughs> in one of the uh, newspaper articles leading up to the draft. And I just had to share it with you, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was, quote, we're going to get a good player regardless of where we pick. But the number two pick is a better asset value than the number four pick. Yeah, they could have done stuff <laughs> no, th- but like, there if on. it was second. <laughs> Is he talking to a kindergarten class? Like, what is he doing with these quotes? Like, yes, the number, yes, Stu, that's that's true. It, the number two pick is a better asset than the number four pick. But interestingly, if you read in that into that, he's using the term asset value, which kind of telegraphs right mm-hmm. there that he's wanting to trade it even before they know they've fallen to four. And he- also, they're telegraphing they want a point guard, right? The yes. Greg Anthony thing has kind of gone to shit. They've still got Lee Mayberry, but everyone knows he's not a starting point guard in the NBA. So there's a lot written in these newspaper articles about Antonio Daniels, Chauncey Billups, Brevin Knight, and Jacques Vaughn basically being like, these are the four guys that they want. So yeah, basically they want to trade it and they'd like to trade down to get a veteran and a lower pick and still get a point guard. But it just turns out that like everyone knows this is a bad draft. And no one's biting on these like trade down ideas and offers. No, uh, interestingly, it's telegraphed by the Toronto Raptors and Isaiah Thomas that they will pick Tracy McGrady 
who is seen as this complete wild card because, again, it is 1997, and the idea of picking a high schooler is still a few years out from being something that general managers can wrap their head around. But again, for every other team, no one seems particularly buzzed about Keith Van Horn, Ron Mercer, and Tony Batty. And history proved that correct, right? And so I think the way that all the general managers, not just Stu, approached this draft was, you know, redeemed by reality. However, some people had better cards than others, and the Grizzlies at four had slightly less. But as you said, point guard, it's what they needed. We talked about this a lot over the second season, how they just had no real great guards. Anthony is leaving. They think that big country is a pillar of the team for years to come. They know that Reef is a pillar already. And mm -hmm. so this is the guy. They need a point guard. These are the options. It was not exactly rocket science. However, let's get back to the actual draft and what happened on that day. That's right. And so Tim Duncan goes first overall. Uh, Keith Van Horn drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers second overall, despite refusing to interview with the team, interestingly, but we know he was later traded to the New Jersey Nets. Third overall, the Boston Celtics. A lot of people thought that Rick Pitino would go with his Kentucky guy, Ron Mercer here. No, he actually goes with Colorado's Chauncey Billups uh, at number three. And then on the clock, the Vancouver Grizzlies, who, you know, it seems like it might have been between Antonio Daniels and Chauncey Billups. They've basically just had their minds made up for them. Yeah, not only that, but when you look at all the previews and profiles that happened at that time, it was thought, you know, it's easy now in hindsight to go, yeah, obviously Chauncey Billups, the guy. It was not that he was seen as this giant pedigree more. It was sort of a reach by Patino to pick him at three. Like you said, it was thought that he would go for Mercer or Petit uh, in that situation or there would be some sort of trade. And Antonio Daniels is there at the number four pick. He has impressed Everyone far and wide, not only in his season in Bowling Green, ratcheting up the rankings, uh, but in the process leading up to it, being seen as a guy who had a good head on his shoulders, who could grow into the position. This was of picks that sometimes you look at and go, in the moment, I don't know. This one seemed to be one where not only was it the match of the team and the position that they felt needed to be filled, but also the who was the best player remaining on the board. Tracy McGrady accepted, like we said, because of just what the culture was in 1997. <sighs> you know, we do the what, do what did Stu do now thing a lot. In this situation, I sort of think his hands were tied. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I, I do like there's there's not really a cut and dry like holy smokes you could have had so and so and it didn't work out but I do have questions about pedigree here yeah. like if you read the newspaper article it says before his final season at Bowling Green he was thinking he was off to Europe or the CBA he was not very high like it, apparently he didn't even appear on some of the scouting sheets though the Grizzlies claim he was a mid first rounder on their sheet heading into this, uh, the 97 or 96, 97 season. But you've got this like kind of comes out of nowhere, has the big senior year, but in a mid-level conference, not one of the blue chip conferences. And I remember even at the time being 15 years old and being like, 
what's Bowling Green? Like, <laughs> who, yeah. like, why are they draft? And I still kind of feel that way, you know, like it's not, you know, obviously now we have examples of like Dame Lillard coming from a smaller school and becoming a legend. And, you know, it is possible. You don't always have to draft from those blue chip schools, but back then it was a lot more unusual. And so I agree. You can't really chastise or just like lay into stew on this pick. But at the same time, there's a bit of a like, it just, for a number four, it just seems so safe. You know, like yes. the distributing point guard with a good head on his shoulders, no kind of like explosive skills, no, nothing that wows anybody in any way. But like, it was kind of like number four, yeah, seems fine, <laughs> which uh, leaves, you, a, bit you, to be, yeah, leaves a bit to be desired. And, and this also was, you know, if you want to do a systemic critique, of how players were drafted in the 90s. It was very much, and we saw this in some of the articles uh, leading up to the draft, where people were like, the two positions that are hardest to fill are center and point guard. And it was very much in the NBA at the time, it's like these are very specific positions that people need to learn and be and identify with their entire time. And it's not about skills and it's not about physicality. It's how well are you doing this thing? And Daniels was the best point guard available in terms of if you are capitalizing P and G on the point and guard and going, this is what you build a team around and you think and you have the confidence in big country Reeves at the time. And here you have this guy that went in his senior year from 16 points a game to 24 points a game, from six assists to seven assists, from 48% from the field to 55% from the field that has now developed a good three-point shot as well that has this creativity and had had this explosive growth at 21 you can talk yourself into it if you have the mindset of a 1997 general manager a mediocre 1997 manager uh <laughs> that's generous that's generous that's, but mediocre mediocre but that's the thing like i think you could slot a lot of different general managers into the position of where vancouver was at the time and go you know what i think this is the best choice but because we have read our newspaper articles and we have the benefit of hindsight and 25 yes. years of opportunity to nitpick on this, we know that there was an option for the Grizzlies to do something both wildly off the board this evening and the 1997 NBA draft that probably would have saved the entire franchise. Let me give you a little bit of foreshadowing. And here's the quote. Phoenix called but they were being unreasonable. That, of course, from our vaunted leader, Stu Jackson. And the offer that was made was Steve Nash and another veteran player for that number four pick with which they took Antonio Daniels. Now, that makes the spine tingle a little bit, right? To know, and again, they had another, it's like destiny was knocking on the door again to get Steve Nash into GM place. And... We could have had a veteran player as well, which I looked at the roster. We couldn't figure out who that might be, but, you know, it could be Cedric Sabalos, Rex Chapman, Dennis Scott, Cliff Robinson, Danny Manning, someone like that. AC Green. AC Green there. And there it was. Steve Nash all like tied up with a bow, ready to send to us and be here in the teal and teal and white. And again, Stu just... He just doesn't, he doesn't like Steve Nash. He was so stubborn. He got upset at all the speculation and was like, I'll prove that we can do it without him. And it was just, 
you know, we talk about this often where it's like, oh, it was Miss Destinies and just like it never really lined up in the perfect way. It never lined up in the perfect way, but it lined up in a way, in a plausible way on this night, uh, especially oh, when you look. It's not like anyone was saying Antonio Daniels is a bonafide all-star. No, no, literally no one anywhere was saying that. Everyone knew this was a weak draft. And this was a chance to bring the person that everyone was pining for, but it would have been a little bit of a risk. And Stu Jackson did not care for risks. And here's the quote that will make you want to light your hair on fire and jump out of your like 15th floor condo in downtown Vancouver. Quote, it would compromise our ability to build this team the way we want to build it. Stu Jackson. And also, Jeremy, I, I'm in a 19th floor condo, not a 15th floor, but I am five feet away, and it is oh so... When you say our vision, right, it shows the smug superiority that Stu yeah. Jackson had month after month, year after year, and it did not involve Steve Dash. It did not involve this great point guard in your backyard. And that is the thing that time and time again infuriates me. Anytime that a reporter would bring up Steve Nash and there would be this smugness to it. And yeah. this, you, <laughs> you, do you don't chuckle. understand. And <laughs> again, if it was for someone that people were saying, oh, Antonio Daniels, this could be a future all-star. This is a guy that could be like a top 20 player in the league. It would be one thing. People were not saying that. People understood this was a weak draft, and yet he was like, this has to be our guy. I don't get it. I it's don't funny. get it. When I listened back to our um, last season's uh, 96 draft episode, like you definitely kind of caught me off guard with the, like, they should have done something to get Steve Nash. And, you know, I do agree with you more so than when you first proffered it to me. But, like, I wasn't fully bought in. I, I kind of agreed, but kind of saw, well, it didn't really make sense based on where he went and the picks that the Grizzlies had. This is the one that kind of puts the nail in the coffin for me, where it's like, okay, this is a grave and grievous error that was made now on multiple occasions, right? Because I get it. You have a chance to do something and you whiff on it. Like life comes at you fast in, mm -hmm. you know, any capacity, but this is like life knocking twice and being like, Hey, actually like seriously, you should probably get this guy from Victoria, from British Columbia, who, you know, just so happens to turn, turns out to be, you know, a top 75 player of all time in the, in the sport <laughs> of basketball. Like you should probably grab him. But no, no, the quote is, they rate Daniels, quote, much higher than that. And how did that say, turn out? I can't, how did I can't that turn out? Oh, <laughs> and, God. you know, it'll be interesting. You know, we'll tell the story of Antonio Daniels with the Vancouver Grizzlies over our next few episodes. And we'll go into games and we'll see how well he did. But, you know, even not in the time. And we don't know the other player that the Suns were offering up. But when you look at the depth of that team and you look at the fact that the Grizzlies gave up a first round pick to get Otis Thorpe, yeah. right? Who was a semi-washed, I don't want to say washed up. That's a little bit too mean. But on the downside of his career, yeah. certainly, yeah. this is just do stubbornness 101 happening. Yeah, and I do want to break down, like, I want to break down the Antonio Daniels pick a little bit more, and I figure there's kind of two ways to do it, and I like to do both. And one is looking at the entirety of someone's career mm -hmm. uh, versus that draft class. And just quickly, uh, Antonio Daniels was fourth 
Again, this is in his draft class, 1997. Fourth in win shares, fourth in games played, fifth in assists and an assist per game, sixth in years in the league, sixth in minutes, seventh in value over replacement player, ninth in box plus minus, which was 0.0 for his career, which was kind of wild, kind of shows like that Mm -hmm. uh, professional mediocrity. So like as far as his position in career wise, you know, you can't slam it too badly. Obviously there's the big whiff on Tracy McGrady, but uh, as you said, the paradigm of the time didn't really match up with high school guys going that high. Seven other teams made that whiff. Right. Yeah, exactly. But the interesting thing is if you look at like I like to do the first five years and compare Mm -hmm. Antonio Daniels' first five years with some of the guys who went behind him. If you compare his first five years to Ron Mercer, no, Mercer's gross stats are better, but those are like good stats on a bad team guy Mm -hmm. on Boston. Um, uh, Daniels' VORP is better. His win shares is almost double in the five years. Tony Batiste, they're similar advanced stats. Uh, they have the win shares that are about the same. I would say taking Tony Batiste would not have moved the needle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Thomas, uh, same VORP, same win shares over the first five years. Again, you can't really make an argument either way. Obviously, having Tracy McGrady would have made a massive difference. We don't need to go into that too much. That's that's a huge whiff. The only one I can find that's like a because they we know they wanted a point guard we know yes. that so like you can't really venture too far out of that that kind and of they need and they right? needed a point guard it was a legitimate thing yes the only thing I think you could possibly argue is that taking Derek Anderson out of Kentucky is the better choice um, I know that Derek Anderson moonlighted as a point guard for part of his career his first five year stats are way better than Antonio mm-hmm. Daniels uh, he's 12 points three rebounds three assists and a steal uh, he's 13.5 VORP versus 3.4 he's 44 win shares versus 17 comes from that blue chip school and for his career more starts minutes points rebounds steals blocks better three point percentage uh, better VORP better win shares per 48 for Derek Anderson so I know that that's a bit of a stretch as far as needing a point guard because also we got to remember back in those days, like there was no pseudo point guards, right? There was no like Luca, there was no Luca Doncic's where it's like, oh, here's a six nine small forward who's actually our point guard. It's like, no, no, they're like shorter guys who control the ball and initiate an offense. And, you know, people really saw it that way. Like you, and you see it with like Brevin Knight. He's like mm-hmm. a classic point guard, Jacques Vaughn, uh, even Chauncey Billups, who also played a bit of shooting guard later in his career. But I could argue a bit that Derek Anderson Anderson should have been taken, but not that strenuously. It, it would have been a reach uh, uh, again. And part of it was the story of Daniels, his brother dying, him like doing everything possible to like work his butt off to become a star in his final year. This was a pick that within the context of the Grizzlies made sense. You can blame when you look at this draft and you look at the arc of this team and you look at what could have happened this day, you can blame David Stern and the owners for not yes. letting the Grizzlies pick first. You yeah. can blame the gods that be for having such a mediocre class of people after Tim Duncan. You can blame the lottery balls for not giving them more asset management opportunities at number two or three. You cannot blame Stu Jackson. You cannot blame Antonio Daniels in spite of what happened. I, I guess I have to begrudgingly seed uh, <laughs> that point. Um, let's just go down the list. We're not going to be, we're not going to do too much on the following, but it goes down. It goes, Denver takes Tony Batie, Boston takes Ron Mercer, 
New Jersey takes Tim Thomas. Golden State takes the great O'Donnell Foyle out of Colgate. Toronto, of course, the coup of the draft outside of Tim Duncan. Uh, Tracy McGrady at nine. Danny Fortson to Milwaukee. He's traded. Sacramento gets Olivier Saint-Jean, who becomes Tariq Abdul-Wahad. Larry Bird makes his first draft pick as a general manager, taking Austin Crozier. Not and a bad Derek, pick. No, not a bad pick. And uh, Derek Anderson goes at 13. Like, legitimately, nothing really else significant of note in the first no. round. You get into the second round, there's a couple of players that are worth mentioning, that being Steven Jackson, mm -hmm. who goes at 43 to Phoenix, and, you know, he makes a name for himself in India or in San Antonio and uh, Indiana, of course, having a really quality career. Alvin Williams goes the 48. Whiz. Yeah, we know him because of, uh, you know, he does the play-by-play -play for the Raptors and had a meaningful career with the Raptors. Uh, and then for me, just a small footnote, God Sham God. I love God Sham God because he, of course, has one of the, he's a very famous uh, New York street ball player and has a famous dribbling move that uh, if you don't know what it is, you should check it out. It's like super famous and all the famous point guards kind of point to God Sham God as the guy who kind of invented this wacky move that uh, gets dusted off, you know, five or six times throughout every NBA season, which is kind of a, a fun little thing. Uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies people might be wondering, to, to, wait, wasn't there a second round pick? Shouldn't it have been high because they were such a bad team? Uh, instead, what happened, dear listeners, is that in a complicated series of moves in order for them to get the great Pete Chilcutt, uh, from the Houston Rockets. Uh, they traded down and switched picks for the uh, second round. I know it is hard to find any good player in the second round, particularly when you trade down from, you know, potentially the 33rd position down to the 53rd. But uh, C.J. Burton, the player that they picked, had a grand total of zero games in the NBA. Uh, the player picked two spots after, Mark Blount, had a bit of a pr pretty good career. Ended up having 605 games in the league, eight points a game, five rebounds, solid contributor. Getting solid contributors in the second part of the second round was not something the Grizzlies did well. They didn't do a lot of good things as well. But there you go. In case you had that missing puzzle piece of what did they do in the second, that's what they did or more but, adequate. Hey, li listen, though. Yeah. If, we, if we really want to do some minutiae here, sure. CJ Bruton... <laughs> is an absolute boss stud of the National Basketball League in Australia. Six-time <laughs> six NBL champion, NBL, NBL grand final MVP, two-time first all-team, and he is now the head coach of the Adelaide 36ers, who just beat the Phoenix Suns in the preseason uh, before the 2022-23 season. So C.J. Bruton had a... Had a very meaningful and excellent uh, basketball career just didn't happen to happen in the National Basketball Association. Good for people in Australia. Yes, exactly. So now is the time for yes. us to continue, you know, <laughs> the the fantasy of where mm -hmm. uh, Justin McElroy and Jeremy Allingham, co-hosts of this powerful little engine that could podcast with a second pick, Steve Francis, we go back in time, but with all the knowledge that we've gained over the last 30 years, and we redraft for the Vancouver Grizzlies. You get more excited than this than I. I just cry. You go, to, you get jazz at this what if, and it just makes me angry. Yeah, I mean, this one's not as exciting as the other ones have been, but I will bring our listeners up to date in case they've missed the other draft episodes. And so, 
going back to the 1995 NBA draft, Dallas offered a big trade for the big country, tr- the big country pick. Mm-hmm. We took that trade. It was the 12th and 24th pick in 95 and a first in 96 mm-hmm. for big country. I still can't believe they didn't take that trade. Uh, we took with the, the 95 picks, we took Corliss Williamson at 12 and Greg Ostertag at 24. That gave us the three and the six in, you know, arguably the greatest draft of all time, 96. Mm-hmm. With the three, we took Sharif, status quo. With the six, we took Kobe. And with the 22, we took Jerome Williams, junkyard dog. This year, I mean, I was going to say take Derek Anderson, but I actually, now that you've kind of dissuaded me, I almost think, do you just stick with Antonio here? I think, I mean, if you, the thing is, like, when you look at Daniel's career and what he went on to, and, you know, being a perfectly cromulent point guard for the Spurs teams that did pretty well, won won, one NBA championship, went deep into playoffs a few other times, uh, that's not a bad place. We'll talk about Daniels over the next few episodes. Part of it was just he was so overexposed trying to be the guy too early on in his career. Uh, He's a perfectly good rotational pick, especially when you have Kobe and Reef right there, along with some real length. You could also just talk about the hypothetical trade. It's not a hypothetical trade because it was one offered by the Phoenix Suns. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We got to do the trade. What am I doing? I forgot about the trade. We're doing the trade. Yeah, and Steve and so Nash, suddenly now we in. have fifteen years between the before the ill-fated Kobe Nash Howard Gasol Lakers. You oh, have <laughs> Kobe and Nash at nineteen and twenty-three years old on the same team with Reef as the power forward. I want to slam my microphone oh, down my right now. Oh my god! <laughs> I can't. Believe, I was just thinking about the picks. I wasn't thinking. We're making trades here too. We did the Dallas trade. We're doing the Phoenix trade. So now the fantasy lineup is Greg Ostertag at the five, Sharif Abdurrahim at the four, Corliss Williamson at the three, Kobe Bryant at the two, Steve Nash starting at the point. Ugh. So we got Nash, Kobe, Reef in the starting lineup, yeah. uh, and then on the bench. You've got Lee Mayberry, Tony Massenberg, Junkyard Dog, Anthony Peeler, George Lynch, and maybe like Danny Manning. Who cares who's on the bench yeah, when you seriously. have Kobe and Nash? Oh my god! And uh, oh my god! And it's all and it was all there and it was all possible and it never happened. And the thing and is, like, the funny thing about this, Justin, is like yes. this squad. As much as people are like, yeah, right, that could never have happened. And like, no. I think it myself. The only thing that's even like remotely unrealistic is the Kobe bit. Yeah. Because for some reason, I remember watching that draft and it was just like, he's not going to later. And it was just like, why? But yeah. So maybe just the Kobe thing is the only, but everything else is completely reasonable and could easily have happened in an alternate universe where we had, you know, a competent general manager. Oh, what could it be? And certainly, you know, you could say, well, it's not if Kobe only was going to go to L.A. and people were sort of told that's just how it's going to be. Antoine Walker looks pretty nice. Eve Kerry Kettles pre the injury yeah. looks pretty nice. All of these things are a heck of a lot better, that combination with Reef, than what we end up having. You're just making me angry. You're just making me angry. Uh, and... Uh, I'm just yeah. I'm just gonna pause so I don't Let's scream. Pause. But again, it's and this is the interesting thing when we watch the documentary and Cat Jamie goes through 
here are all the things that messed up and could have been. And you can defend individually pretty much, pretty much each and every individual decision that Stu Jackson and the Vancouver Grizzlies made. But in totality, it left them being the worst team in the NBA, and it left them with this detritus of what-if picks that continue to confound both of us today. And with that... This has been with the second pick, Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham for Justin McElroy. Join us for game one of the 97-98 NBA season. Game one of the Antonio Daniels era in Vancouver. That episode coming up soon. Join us for that.